everybody, welcome back to the Sneaker Enthusiast Podcast. My name is Brian, and each week my brother Nacho and I sit down with a guest and we geek out about sneakers we used to wear back in the day. Uh, we talk sneakers. In this particular episode, we're going to be doing some sneaker history. And we have a very, very, very special guest, the founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. Uh, Joe Foster is, man, he's a gangster, man. He's in his 80s now. Um, he's still, he just put out a book on the history of Reebok. Uh, he, he made the time to sit down with us, two goofs, and, and, and tell us the history of Reebok. And, man, I can't wait to share this. It's quite a story. Also, there is no uh, segment of wear one, remake one, erase one this week. Just because it's such a special episode for us, and it was such an honor for us to, to speak with Joe Foster, I didn't want to take up too much time in the intro. So with that being said, let's get into our interview with the founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. Um, well, we have quite a story to tell. So I know that you grew up in, in, uh, in Bolton and you were born into a, a family business. That's correct. And I think there's a big misconception for a lot of people, especially when they are born into a, uh, into a family business and they, they try to start something on their own. Um, there's sort of this idea that everything was handed to them. You know, they were kind of like a rich kid and their father did everything for them. And um, I was wondering if you ever struggled with that, you know, with the dynamic that you had with your dad. Um, him having his business and then you starting Reebok. Um, did you ever struggle like separating that? And I, I would assume that, you know, some people don't think that you actually started from the bottom. You didn't take that your dad's business. You started your own separate business. Well, that's very true. I mean, it's, uh, we have to go back a long way, don't we? Yeah, it's quite. We're really going back to 1960 and before, which is now 50 years away. And you know, life was a lot different then. Perceptions were different then. And we didn't have, computers you know we're not able to do what we're doing now so if you can take away your mobile phone uh-huh. take away your computer and think this is life and life is what you see and where you are right. and okay yes we were brought up both jeff and myself brought up in the family business but the family business wasn't a big business again we go back and we can think my grandfather way way back at the turn of the century there 1895 mm-hmm. at the age of 15 he made himself a pair of running spikes. And he's credited with either inventing or certainly pioneering the running spike. He got the idea from his grandfather. Mm-hmm. His grandfather was a cobbler. He used to repair street shoes, but he also used to repair cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days had spikes in the bottom. And he probably asked his grandfather, why have you got spikes in? Give you grip. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so he, he thought he was an athlete. But he would be running there, maybe on grass, uh, maybe on cinder tracks. And he knew that with spikes, he could get better traction. And he did. And in fact, he wasn't a very good runner. He was only about halfway down the field normally when it came to a running race. But he, he actually got second on that the day he wore his spikes. So, so that I sort of said to everybody else, what's he doing? Right. So they all wanted spikes, beginning of his business. And in those days, when we're talking about 1900, by 1900, he had his own business. He was 20 years old. But then it was just a sports business. Right. I mean, now, now the size of the companies, everything we see today is driven by the street. It's driven by fashion. You know, that wasn't there. Right. When he gave his shoes, when Joe gave his shoes to, to athletes, he gave it to the winners because he was influencing. But it, he was influencing other athletes. So that was the size of his business, not very big. But he did brilliant. Right. 
He really did. I mean, in the first uh, decade of the 20th century, between 1900 and 1910, uh, he had gold medals from Olympic winners. He had four world records in his shoes. Uh-huh. And the second decade, we, we, we had World War I, and nobody's buying running shoes in World War I. We're repairing army boots. So we, we go to the 20s then. And that was his decade. That was his belly pock, if you will. Right. Um, and uh, we, we, we have a letterhead from those days uh, in which he lists down oh, just under 100 football teams in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know you know it's soccer as far as you're concerned. But if you can <laughs> think of any soccer teams in the UK, he was supplying them. Manchester United, Arsenal, all the big teams. Mm-hmm. He was supplying them. And... I don't know, Chariots of Fire. Do you remember Chariots of Fire? It's a little old now, but it's a, um, it is a film. Okay. Uh, and it's about three, three athletes. Uh, there was Eric Little, uh, Harold Abrahams and Lord Burley, and they all won gold medals Okay. in the 1920s. So that film was about, but he supplied them with the shoes. Okay. Unfortunately, he died in, in 1933, he died, and I wasn't born until 1935, right. which is still a long time ago. <laughs> it is. About that, yeah. Right, and you, you were born uh, into a, a post-World War II era. Pre-World War II. Pre-World War. Pre-World War II. Yeah, I'm pre-World War, but, and I was born on my grandfather's birthday. Right. The 18th That's of right. May. And so it's about 15 months after he died. And my grandmother, she was a real firebrand. Yeah, Grandma Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Maria. Actually, they called her Mariah in those days. Right. Okay. Like, paint your wagon. The, you know, the wind is called Mariah. <laughs> she was called Mariah, and she was a real firebrand. And uh, <clears throat> mother, my mother didn't like that, but my mother didn't uh, really have any chance to stand up against Mariah. Mariah was, she was head of the family at that time because Joe had died. And... Uh, so I, had to be, I was called Joe as well. So that's why I have the same name as, as grandfather. And you think, 1935? Okay, my father and uncle had taken on the business then. Although Mariah was in charge, they were running the business. Um, by 1939, we had World War II. Mm-hmm. So for the next six years, I'm brought up with blackouts and all the things you could probably think of a war going on in Europe, bombing there were bombs arriving in Manchester, which is about 10 miles away from where we live. But, okay, we weren't really in any danger, but we could see a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's 1945, before that ends. I'm 10 years old. And I go through education, as we all do. By the time I get to 17, I do join the company. I get 1952, I join the business, and I, I learn how to make running shoes but it was not a big business. And uh, I didn't care too much. Who does, 17, you know, who's interested? No, and girls are about and you're doing normal things, having fun, I'm playing badminton, I'm doing, but at 18 years old, one, one year into the business, I have to go and do national service. Mm-hmm. That's two years, two years doing national service. And brother and myself, we both went at the same time. And, and this was so uh, life-changing. Because when we came back, we came out of the service, we came back to the company, and we were looking around and we think, you know, mother hadn't been there for two years. She hadn't been making our breakfast, making the bed, looking after us, doing the things that mothers usually do. Right. You had to do it yourself. You had to learn how to live a little bit. You, it opened your eyes. Yeah. And when we came back to the company, we, 
we find a failing company. We're looking around and they're still making the same shoes they were making in the 1930s. And we're thinking, you know, come on, we've got to change. Right. Jeff, Jeff had done his national service in Germany. And in Germany, he'd seen the, uh, uh, the likes of Adidas, Puma, what they were doing with running shoes, color, changing things. Um, but we're trying to get my father and uncle to say, look, the business has to, has to grow. Uh, but they didn't. They feuded. They were fighting. In fact, Jeff and myself had to pull them apart right. on more than one occasion. Now, that's not good for a business, is it? You know, you know, how do you make a plan? Where you go when all they're doing is fighting? Yeah. No, no. And for three years, we tried our best to sort of come on, you know, but we could see the business was slowly and slowly. We didn't have any salespeople. We just relied on advertising in Athletics Weekly and other athletics magazines. Um, but the business was slowly dying. That's right. And I remember, I remember reading about that, you know, and I can just imagine somebody trying to navigate, you know, a small family business dynamics today might have that same kind of relationship with their family or people in charge. Like if, if it wasn't your family, you could have just pulled away and implemented your own ideas. But because it was your family, it took a long time for you to, to say, you know what, that's it. And, and, and I'm, me and Jeff are going to start our own thing. You know, it took us three years. It didn't indeed. But again, we, it wasn't just that it took us three years. We, we knew how to make the shoes that we'd been making before. We knew what Fosters were making. Mm -hmm. And we knew that Fosters were at least 10, 20, and 30 years behind the game. They were not there. So what kind of shoes what kind of shoes were they? Were they still well, they weren't plimsolls, right? They were, what kind of running? No, no, not no, not plimsolls. Spikes? You, yeah, you require different manufacturing technique. Mm -hmm. Plimsolls uh, were made with rubber and rubber was vulcanizing and a totally different process. <clears throat> Um, th these were hand sewn. Hand sewn. So they were made inside out, and they used to sew the, the sole onto it, and then turn them the other way around. Uh, my father, he did do a few um, machine, we'll say machine made uh, shoes, whether you machine instead of hand sewing. But uh, you know, we're thinking, well, yes, we're at the top of the market for certain people, but we're losing that business. They were actually selling to America. They were selling to Yale University. That's right. They had an agreement with, uh, it's going back now, their top coach, or two top coaches, uh, was Frank Ryan and Bob Jack. They were head coaches at Yale. And so that was, that was a tremendous contact, if you think. Yeah. What a, you couldn't get a better contact than that, could you? Yale University, mm -hmm. you know, the top coaches. And I think about 200 pairs a month they were sending out to Yale University, and of course Yale were, they were selling to other universities. So they had a business. But again, the shoes were too expensive. Hand sewn is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And they had to try and make cheaper and cheaper shoes. And it, it wasn't working that well. So even that business was failing. Um, we weren't, Jeff and I decided we needed to go to college. And fortunately, within about 20 miles of where the Foster's business was. There was a college, and it, it's called the Valley. Up the Valley, the Valley used to make shoes, mainly slippers, mainly just simply slippers, which would be injection molded and things. But at least we learned a bit about shoemaking. Okay. And what, what we did benefit from was uh, working with people, talking with people, uh, people who were in the business. 
Yeah, so we learned about leather. We, we learned about shoemaking today's or yesterday's. <laughs> no, it's yesterday's. But we, we learned the then practices. And <clears throat> in setting up our own business, which we did, and we, and we had no money. You know, we were, <laughs> we were unfortunately uh, trying to do things on a shoestring. A shoestring. But even then, That would have been a Mercury Sports, right? Well, that was the first name we came up with, Mercury Sports. Um, and in those days, we could get second-hand machinery pretty cheap. Right. But with the help, the help of the guys at Rossendale College, you know, we managed to get the machinery together, get it into well, – it was a very dilapidated building. It, it had three floors. It was an old brewery. And uh-huh. um, we can only use the middle floor. And as you read in the book, though, we, even that floor was a little delicate. And we had to put our machinery around the edges. Otherwise, it would be difficult. And we had a shoe press. Mm-hmm. And every time press came down to cut something out, the, the floor just bounced. So we, <laughs> we had a two or three inch bounce on the floor. So it was a bit worrying. It really was. But anyway, we set up Mercury Sports Footwear. And uh, I'm 23. Jeff, he's 25, we're young, yeah, we're invincible, you know, we're indestructible, so well, you can do it, yeah, you can do anything at that age, uh, you know, who worries, and we didn't, and we, we still, but 18 months into our business, our accountant said, uh, well, you're doing very nicely, you need to register your name, otherwise, if somebody else decides that uh, they like the look of your shoe, and they're going to make some shoes and call them Mercury. Mm-hmm. You're going to have some uh, trouble. So you better register your name. Oh, again, we're very young, wondering what's going on registering names. So, well, we couldn't use Foster. I mean, we obviously had Fosters were down the road. So using our own name, no, we can't use Fosters. And that's why we use Mercury. So we went to um, register Mercury, but we found out it's pre registered. And we had to go and see an agent. Mm-hmm. I went to see an agent in Manchester. Very nice day. And he opened the window and, sorry, Mercury pre-registered. You can buy it. It was on sale for £1,000. So you'd already checked that. Um, but £1,000 in those days is probably like asking, I don't know, $100,000 now when you're just in a setup situation. Yeah. It doesn't work. We, we didn't work. have that money. We didn't have that, no. Um, so he pointed through the window. He pointed to a sign Kodak. I said, yes, Kodak, what about that? Well, he said, it's made up. It's an invented name. It doesn't mean anything. You've got to bring me a name like that or something else. So we had to look for a new name. And he said, don't bring me one. Bring me at least 10. And I'm saying, why? Well, he said, we've got to uh, the registrar. He's got to check these. We don't want to go one at a time and find we've got 10 failures. It'll take us ages to get this done. Okay, so we go back. We sit around the table. And I don't know if you've done that, sitting around the table thinking, what shall we call this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an endless thing. It's yeah. like, you know, endless. It gets silly at times. You, know, you really get some silly. But we're thinking of animals. We're thinking of birds. So we have something like cougar. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Or uh, a falcon. Yeah, anything sounds sounds pretty good. But in 1948, I'm only eight years old, and I'm wearing a pair of Foster Spikes, and I win a running race, a 60-yard race. I win it. Brilliant. What do I get? Prize. A dictionary. 
a dictionary. <laughs> I'm only eight years old, I get a dictionary. But not just a dictionary. It was an American dictionary. Okay. Webster's. It was a Webster's dictionary. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time. We didn't know at the time. Top but shelf. <laughs> numerous spellings, as you know, numerous spellings, which are slightly different from an English, an Oxford English spelling of words, different. But anyway, I've got this book, and I like that letter R. I thought, oh, that's a good, strong word to start something with. And I'm thumbing through the R section of my Webster's Dictionary. Didn't have to go too far, because E's not too far down the uh, alphabet. R-E-R-W-E-B-O-K, Reebok, a small South African gazelle. Gazelle? Wow. That, oh, that, that sounds a bit fast, a gazelle. Let's try it. So we put Reebok at the top of the list. Now, had that been an English dictionary, it wouldn't have been R-W-E-B-O-K. It would have been R-H-E-B-O-K, which I don't think would have been as attractive. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I couldn't see that. It didn't sort of, you don't see the picture. It's like, no. However, we didn't know any different. R-W-E-B-O-K. Took it to the uh, agent. And I said, look, I've got, I've got your 10 names. Okay. But I said, we want this one. Reebok. We really need this one because you know, we have to be in love with this. It has to be our passion. Right. Yeah. We, we've got to be behind it. We just won't, don't want any of them. As it happened, Reebok was the only one that came clear from the registrar without any. It did have a couple of small things, but the, uh, our, our agent said that doesn't matter. That, that won't be a problem. So Reebok, we became Reebok. But the registrar, the registrar said, we can only put you in part B of the register. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, part B of the register means that if anybody comes to me or comes to us and starts making shoes out of Reebok skin, we can't stop them. Oh, okay. But we thought, well, that's a bit of a rare oddity that would even try and think of that. However, 20 years later, the registrar came back and said, we're moving you. You move from the B section to the A section now of the register. I said, because now everybody knows that Reebok is a shoe, is a running shoe, not an animal. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. I appreciate you sharing the, the story of how you came up with the name because I think a lot of people think it's I don't know, some romantic you know, uh, process, but it, it was literally just you going through a dictionary that you won at a, uh, at a contest when you were a kid. That's amazing. So as most businesses starting out, would you had to you had to innovate and you had to figure out ways to to use your small budget to market and you kind of brilliantly um, hired local athletes right to help uh, with sales like early sales of the of, of Reebok and that really uh, paid off for you for a few years. Well, there were various methods that went into. We we started with cycle shoes of all things, mm-hmm. and cycling was quite a big thing in in the UK, quite big. And a local cyclist, he he came in and said, "Let me have some samples." Uh, and we did. We gave him samples, and he just that was his training. His training was to cycle fifty miles uh, radius all around, calling all the store shops. And because he was quite a good cyclist, mm-hmm. they would listen to it. Oh, and because he was cycling in Reebok, cycling, yeah, and we had a nice business. Uh, but it's, it's in the book. We, um, we advertised in, uh, in the cycling magazine, and we picked up this. He was a Scotsman, but he, he lived and worked in London. And he, he must have been, 
an exceedingly good salesman because once he started with us, the orders came in absolutely fantastic. These orders, we couldn't cope. We had to take people on. We had to build up our, our workforce. And we're, we're making these, these issues. And this went on for 18 months, when all of a sudden it stopped. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we didn't get another order. <laughs> Again, telephones, we had no mobiles. We didn't have a telephone number for him because we used to send his payment check by post. And everything was done by post. His orders came in by post. We didn't have fax machines then. We had nothing. So it's, it's a week, and we're thinking, what's well, happening? Write a letter. No, no answer. But uh, it was probably about three weeks to a month. And we got this telephone call. And we, didn't, we couldn't telephone him, but we did have a phone. Mm-hmm. So this telephone call. And it was his landlady. And his landlady said, um, do you owe this, I forgot his name, do you, do you owe him any money? Because uh, um, he died in a car crash. And... That was the end of our cycle shoe business. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> but that, that, that's what happened to that business. But we had, a, you know, we were well in with the local athletics clubs, and we'd started to grow our, our athletics business. That's right. So that that was really going. But I used to go in my car, call on retailers, you know, knock on the shop and say hello. And the, these retailers they were mainly uh, soccer players who retired. And they had a sports shop where they sold everything, all the bits and pieces, cue for your talk, your chalk for your cues and things like that if you're playing billiards, snooker or pool. And uh, I, I would go in and people didn't know Reebok. And I would say, look, this Reebok and introduce them to this nice range of shoes and they'd look at me. Some would be quite nice and accept, oh, yes, I'll take a one or two pairs. But others would just look and say, look, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Dunlop was a, quite a big, yeah. uh, again, plimsolls, plimsolls in those days, they were plimsolls. Why do I need Reebok? Yeah. Why did he need Reebok? <clears throat> he didn't. He didn't need Reebok. Yeah. So I had to find out how to make him need Reebok. That was my problem then. Is how do you make him need Reebok? But uh, yes, we in the UK were very lucky. We had the Amateur Athletics Association. I'm sure the United States is the same one. US Amateur Athletics in those days. I mean, Amateur Amateur Athletics is now it's, it's gone now. Yeah, no such thing. Uh, but uh, they produced a handbook, and the handbook those were about two, three hundred, maybe more uh, clubs, and they were all affiliated to the three A's. And in there was the address and the name of every secretary. Well, for me, it was, uh, that was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. It was, a letter went out to every secretary throughout the United Kingdom um, with an offer, you know, the catalogue of the shoes, and an offer of 15% discount. And if anybody in the club wished to become an agent... They could have the 15%. I got 150, nearly 200 agents. And our business really took off nicely. And what it, what it also gave us was tremendous respect mm-hmm. amongst athletes. All of a sudden, we were in the business. We were not just a sports shop. We were not just selling shoes. We were part of the industry. And that, 
so we were we were sort of like I say we were punching well above our weight. We were really uh, well respected, but that's not a big business. The running business in the United Kingdom in those days, the athletic, I think we call it track and field. Really, it's track and field at that in those days it was not a big business. But coming back to where my father, uncle, and my grandfather, they were dealing with Yale University. Mm-hmm. I knew in the USA we had colleges, universities. They all had a coach. You could go to university on a scholarship, an athletic scholarship. This was a, a much bigger market. Right. And it, and for years, you enjoyed the fruits of your labor and business was good, but you, you wanted to expand. Like You had this burning desire to break into the U.S. market because you knew that was going to be good for your business. And um, you eventually did, in a way, break in with a, a distributor. With uh, I think it was Frank, Lawrence Sports or Lawrence Frank Sports, something like that. I love that one. And it, yeah. And it got pulled, right? <laughs> and it kind of like pulled you under the under the rug because you put all your eggs in one basket. And uh, and I I feel like that's kind of happening now. Just to kind of bring it to now, like with some. I mean, obviously we're about a year into the pandemic, but I feel like that happened to a lot of people you know, having to navigate such sudden changes like that. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that. Well, <clears throat> funny enough, with, with Lawrence, I had a good friend who, who was the sales manager. He, he was in charge of sales. And Lawrence only made soccer boots and rugby boots. They didn't make athletics. They didn't make training shoes. And we were by them making training shoes. We had a good range of athletics and training shoes. So he said, why don't we take over your sales? Why don't we become your, your sales? And yeah, they wanted to do it globally. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So we started that. Only two years into that, though, my good friend, he left and went to Barta. Why did he leave? Well, the man who, Mr. Lawrence himself, who was the owner of the business, he was, he was getting on a bit. He was into his late 70s and decided he would retire. So he retired out of the business and promoted his son-in-law, to run the business. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, his son-in-law knew nothing about business or nothing about shoes. And uh, it's in the book. They, he tried to change from the traditional way of, uh, let's say, cementing or sewing a sole onto a shoe into doing injection molded. Mm-hmm. And injection molding, which was coming in then, that was, it was cutting edge. You know, that was, it was needed, it was right. Uh, and what he did is he just got rid of all the old process and they built well, they built a building to take this new machine and it was a big machine, an expensive machine. Mm-hmm. They had to borrow money to buy it. It was expensive. <clears throat> but like all new things that you try, you can put a schedule in and if you miss the schedule, expect it. It'll, it'll cost you twice as much. It'll take twice as long before. And it, it hadn't, it hadn't allowed for that. That's right. In fact, they, made, they actually built the building too small and they had to extend the building when the machine arrived. Uh, and the machine didn't work. And, you know, there's a season. There's a season for soccer shoes. You know, they, they sell them in August, July and August. That's a big selling time. If you miss that, you've missed the big season. And he missed it. So all, all that business, suddenly from all those, they, they had this machine, they had all these... Uh, half-made shoes yeah. and, and no income because they couldn't sell anything. So they were going into business. And uh, as you read in the book, uh, it was taking us down as well. So I had to hire a van and 
goes straight away down to the uh, down to the warehouse because they didn't they weren't paying me. <laughs> so I collected all the shoes that they had that were not paying for and brought them back to our factory. And then it was a mission. How do we sell these shoes? We were going around to school, schools. <clears throat> we were advertising locally. We had the price at half the price of retail. But, you know, even half the price of retail price, we were making money. We were making more money than selling them to Lawrence. So we actually made money on the deal. And I don't know. We, we just got a lot of luck. And, it, and we, we worked hard. Um, and we got out of that situation. <clears throat> so, but that was distribution for the UK mainly. They, they, they didn't really get into any uh, exports. That's right. But it wasn't, it wasn't too long after that because, again, there's quite a few wholesalers who, who saw what was going on. And we were then approached uh, by Carter Pocock, another one. And I let them just have the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just have the UK. That's fine. Yeah. Look after that. That gave me time to look abroad. Gave me time. I must go to the USA. Right. And it was good, good fortune at that time that the British government decided they wanted to help the sports business to export. And so <clears throat> they advertised and they said, we'll, we'll pay for a stand at the NSGA show, National Sporting Goods of America show, and that's in Chicago. It's in February. The late seventies, yeah. No, it was uh, nineteen sixty-eight. Okay, so this is pre pre Paul Fireman. That's I didn't meet Paul Fireman then. No, I, right. that was my first trip there, uh-huh. and uh, I went with a good friend and we set up our stand. Yeah, we got the first paid. Everything was paid apart. I think half of the hotel bill they paid as well. But it was a good thing. And yeah, the Americans would come up. Oh, love your shoes. They're great. Where do we get them from? Um, I said, we get them from England. And it's like, is that New England? <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's across the water. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, yeah. it's an importation. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, importing. They didn't want to import. Right. No. Uh, and love the product. I said, look, you get somebody in the UK, some, sorry, somebody in the USA who will start, start the shoes, we'd love to try it. Well, that was 1968. And before I managed to get that, it was 1979. That's right. 11 years I tried. 11 years, and I must have had six, I think it was at least six failures to, to, get, to get the product, you know, to get somebody to take the product. And I realized that I needed, why, why, why did they want to buy my shoes? Why, why would you want to import Reebok? Why, why would you want to do that? So we needed a hook. Now, this is where a lot of luck came in, because... Right at the end of the 1960s, uh, Bob Anderson. Bob Anderson, he started Runner's World. That's right. You probably know Runner's World. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and in Runner's World, he started off with a single page. Great. But, you know, nothing much. By the time we, we got down to the middle of the 70s, the Runner's World magazine was full color, glossy. It was everything. And, and it was really bringing the... Running it really created this uh, the demand for running. <clears throat> There's a bit of a question as to was it Nike that created it or was it Runners World? I think I think it was major runners, mainly Runners World, and I think they they provided Nike with a, a massive a massive market. Yeah, I think Runners World at the time, right, uh, from what I understand, had a huge hole on the market. Like if you were ranked in in Runners World, 
high, uh, usually translated to more business. Absolutely. <clears throat> so a runner's world would drive in that market. And, uh, and the thing is that Bob Anderson, of course, he, like you say, he, he had a lot of persuasion. And he decided that he could test shoes. They set up a little laboratory, started testing shoes, uh, and they started to rate them, number one, number two. So <clears throat> if you, whatever category you were in, and the big category, of course, was the training shoe, the road shoe that, uh, um, that most people just ran, did a 5K, did a 10K, or just went out training. This, this had become massive. And if you got rated number one, you'd almost certainly got a million people wanting your shoe in America, almost me. And ah, that's fantastic. The problem is that, you know, you're hoping you might get a number one, but then how do you produce a million shoes? Phil Knight had to go to Japan. He had to plead with Onitsuka there in Japan, come on, I want more shoes. We're number one. By the time he had enough shoes to satisfy that market, we were seven, eight months down the road. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a major thing. You can't just turn on that production. So by that time, the retailers are getting the stock, beautiful, they're selling the shoes, but they know for a while, and everybody knows, in another couple of months, there'll be a new shoe, a new rating. I think this lasted about three years during the mid-70s. And I don't know who put pressure on Bob Anderson. I think, I think he realized that having a number one shoe was killing the industry. So... He changed that to a, a star rating. Brilliant. Five star was the top, and so it went down. And at five stars, you could get probably three, four shoes, all five stars. Brilliant. What did we need? We needed a five-star shoe. That would be the hook. If we could get a five-star shoe, we would more than likely get a distributor. <clears throat> and uh, so I designed Aztec. That's right. And Aztec was designed specifically to meet what uh, Bob Anderson was doing. And uh, so by 1979, February of 1979, I'm back to the NSGA show, and I'm back with our gold range. Our gold range was the Aztec, which was the trainer. Uh, we had a racing shoe called Midas, and we had a spike track shoe called Inca. And this was our gold range. year previously, we'd, ha we'd, we'd as a... Uh, tested this out at Edmonton for the Commonwealth Games, mm -hmm. and it done really well. We've done really well. So I'm at, uh, back in Chicago, February 1979, and it's cold in Chicago. <laughs> Which any year you go, in February, it's really, really cold. Mm -hmm. However, I, I get a visit from Kmart, and with running becoming so big, Kmart saying, well, you know, we, we'd like to sell you shoes. Uh, we want to order 25,000 pairs. <laughs> oh right that's about six months work for our small factory back in the UK <clears throat> but you know we didn't go into this blind we knew very well if we did get a five star shoe and we were aiming for that we were, I'd made arrangements with my old friend who'd been at Lawrence and gone to Barter he would make us shoes and they, they could have turned on 5,000 pairs a week so you know, that would have been that would have been okay but then came out and said but we want them at a better price ah well, although Barter were at a better price than we could make them back in our factory, a better price meant going to the Far East, meant going to Korea. Mm -hmm. And again, we knew this question would come up, so I'd made, uh, uh, I'd made arrangements with uh, some, some people. Uh, 
that they would sample us from South Korea. So we were, we were somewhat prepared. But 25,000 pairs, I'm thinking, mm. you know, came out, they, they work on floor space. And every, every square meter of floor space, it has to produce so much money. And you, you begin to think, well, if you don't produce enough money, that's the first and the last 25,000 pairs you will ever sell to Kmart. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, <clears throat> but I'm, uh, and Paul Feynman came to the stand also in, uh, in February of 1979. And Paul, he was, he was working with his brother and his, and his brother-in-law, <clears throat> and they had Boston Camping. And Boston Camping was a, a small wholesale outfit. You know, they were doing tents and uh, fishing rods, all that sort of uh, thing. And, and I think Paul was a bit tired of doing that. I think he'd had enough year on year just doing the same thing. So he said, Joe, he said, I'd, I'd love to be your agent because I think, you know, running is really, really, really good. He said, but uh, we need, you know, we need something. We need a five-star shoe. Come this way, Paul. And I, I took it to the thing. This, I said, is going to be a five-star shoe. We're absolutely sold on this one. It's going to be, we, we need it. And, uh, you know, we'd done our homework on it. We knew that we were as near as we could to saying this is a five-star. So that relationship with Paul, even with Kmart, I kept both nice and warm from February up until, I guess the last week in July, when the, uh, when the, the shoe uh, edition comes out. And, you know, our shoes have gone over there. In fact, even getting our shoes over there caused a few ructions with, with other people we were working with. But we got our shoes there and they were tested. And we're, we're there on uh, this last week in July and I picked up the phone to Paul. I said, Paul, it was 12 o'clock. Well, you know the time difference we have. Yeah. Boston were five hours difference. 12 o'clock for me is seven o'clock for him. He's a bit sort of dozy as he answers the telephone. <clears throat> oh, Polish Joe. Oh, right. <clears throat> Can you nip down to the local uh, kiosk and pick up a runner's world? Because today it should be out and we need to know about Aztec. Okay. Phone down. An hour later, he came back. Joe. Yes. Aztec. Five stars. Ah, brilliant. That was it. Right. That was it. We'd got the hook. We knew now we've got people wanting our shoes. He said, but not only Aztec. He said, Midas, Inca, they also got five stars in their own categories. So mm -hmm. that was our launch in America. Three, three five-star shoes. Which was huge. Absolutely huge. Yes. It was like the, the top of the top. I actually have, uh, uh, well, these aren't exactly the Aztec, but they're like a modernized version of it. It's a bit modernized, yes, but that's the Aztec, yes. But this is the upper that you and Jeff designed. And uh, <laughs> I know that the, the red and yellow, um, yes. well, first of all, it's still so beautiful. This colorway is just incredible, <laughs> right, David? It's, it's really gorgeous. It's really nice. I really beautiful that, yes. And uh, I know the red and yellow was kind of just like a, well, <laughs> that those are the only colors we have. So that's kind of how <laughs> it ended up on the shoe. And I just love that about, yeah. you know, I love the history behind the shoe. And, and uh, it's I think it's just a, such an important shoe in, in Reebok's history. 
Yeah, but you're quite right. I, I remember designing the shoe and designed the sole, the Roadstar sole, which is just slightly changed now, but the, it, it's been on the classics forever, that Roadstar sole. I remember going to Jeff and saying, right, you know, can you put this together, get you the stripes on it? And when I, I looked at the shoe when he'd when he done it, I said, How, where do you get those colours from? <clears throat> like you say, they're the only ones I had. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Oh, fantastic, you know. <clears throat> that's how you make decisions in life. <laughs> yeah, the five-star shoe. And that, that was great. And that that in itself really would have created big business in America. Yeah. Really would have been big. And we would have grown nicely. Right. But, you know, we, we had this guy called Arnhel Martinez. That's right, yeah. Arnhel, he's a tech rep. And he's tech repping down in California, Los Angeles, in fact. He's, are you L.A. or... I'm in L.A. Uh, yeah. My brother's in Fresno. I'm in L.A. How are you doing, Joe? <laughs> Fresno, California. David, I've seen you on a couple of occasions. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're wearing champion. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me hide it real quick. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> We're all friends. But Arnold's down there in L.A. And uh, his, his wife, Frankie, she's going to these aerobic classes. Aerobic classes. And Arnold said... What, what's an aerobic classes? Going with a with a girlfriends, the friends they're coming back and they're full of it. They really full of this. And, and he said, "What is it?" And Frankie said, "Well, it's uh, it's exercise to music, and it's really good." That switched on along. I'm going to come down to the next one of your your classes and have a look what's going on, <clears throat> which he did. And uh, what did he see? He see the instructor. Wearing a pair of running shoes. Oh, and half the class, they're also running, wearing running shoes. The other half, no shoes at all. Oh, that's a good light bulb moment for Arnold. He sees an opportunity. Wow, why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics? For these girls, a nice, soft, glove leather upper with a cushion sole. Brilliant. So he has his way up to Boston. To have a word with Paul Feynman. And he says to Paul, look, what's going on down here in, in California, in LA? These girls, you know, we've got a brilliant chance here. They, 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 these shoes, to make a shoe specifically for them, be great. And Paul says, nah, come on, come on. We, we're really doing well with running. We, you know, it's fantastic. We're growing. Why do we want to start playing about making shoes for some girls just dancing about down there? And uh, so Arnold's not put off. Arnold goes round to the back door and has a word with the production people. And he, he persuades them, make me, make me 200 pairs in glove leather and let me try them down there in LA. He was very persuasive. And he got his, five, he got his 200 pairs of shoes, took them, got them back down there in LA, gave them out to the, uh, to the instructors. Some of the girls were you know, at the front of the classes doing whatever. And, and that was it. All of a sudden, the girls had this beautiful shoe. Right. It was also a little pushback from yourself, right? Because the materials of the shoes, you were like, that's not, we can't mass produce that. <laughs> the glove leather? Yeah, the glove leather. <laughs> I'm a shoe You don't use glove leather on shoes. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm saying that we had. We, we were using them on, on what we had then, the World 10. The World 10 was a, a road racing shoe. 
it, it hardly had any cushioning. It had glove leather, but we reversed the glove leather. So we were using suede on the outside okay. because glove leather is one millimeter thick and one millimeter, you know, you can't touch it. You can't do anything with that. You, so we just allowed the glue to go into the uh, suede and we could stick solar. With the aerobic shoe, they were using the leather side out, the finish side. So they had to take some of the finish off. They had to, they had to break the surface. <clears throat> and you break the surface something as thin as one millimeter out. Yeah, and I'm saying you can't do that. Well, I didn't know about it until it was much later. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> my reaction was no wonder they're falling apart and were falling apart. Mm -hmm. The girls would probably get three, four weeks out of, and then the side of the shoe would just bust apart because with glove leather, you can just pick it up and you, you can rip it like a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. it just, it's, that, it's that flimsy. However, they put nylon, uh, they lined it with nylon to, to strengthen it, and then I'm saying, you put nylon on it and it doesn't breathe. You know, once you've stuck nylon to the inside, so what did we do? They punched holes in it. To make it free, so we'd rather. But had we been anywhere else but uh, the United States, the company would have gone flat on that one. It would have been a real bad time. Um, but it took us about three months before we we got some good leather. It's, it's just that the thicker leather was usually very stiff and very hard, and it was a matter of getting the tanneries to soften it, make it much more supple, which they did. And so we answered that problem, but. What happened? I mean, we we got people like Jane Fonda in her, uh, her videos, her exercise videos, using wearing Reebok. Wow, it was a white shoe with just this, this nice Reebok lettering, and the Union Jack was a splash of colour, and they loved it. The women just loved it. Women were just wearing this shoe, not just for aerobics. They they wore it to go to work. They took the heels and the bag and they whatever. And so Reebok, all of a sudden Reebok became a woman's company. You know, Reebok was known in America to the running fraternity. We were doing quite nice to them. But in general, to people in America, Reebok, no. They knew Adidas. They knew Nike. And they were looking at those companies as being male, sweaty. But look at this nice, beautiful little British company. And these beautiful shoes. And we became a woman's shoe. That's right. And you know, what happened then? Well, from a nine a nine million dollar company, we grew to thirty millions. And we're talking about year on year, thirty millions, ninety millions, three hundred million, then nine hundred million. And that's how the company expanded over those those years. They were, they were absolutely mad, absolutely crazy that in those years, but we'd expanded up to almost a billion dollars in about five years. Yeah. I think my mom my mom had plenty of those shoes. It was a little bit before my time, but my brother David here, I know he remembers. She actually still wears so oh, the yeah. Reebok Princess to this day. She still wears it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To this day, because, you know, they come in the wide foot, and you know, so she, yeah. she really enjoys those still. <laughs> I mean, at that time, David, would you say that Reebok was above both Adidas and Nike in terms of relevance in the United States, right? That was for the fir very first time. Yeah, when I was a child, I was a child. I'm 36, so I was a child. But I remember, like, my earliest memories was, you know, like the cream of the crop as far as footwear would go. It was Reebok, you know? Like, that was just it. They were just made 
just very well. And it was just, that's all I really wanted. You know, that's all I really wanted. And this is talking about, you know, obviously after 1989, but I remember, you know, like from the Reebok pump to the Reebok ventilator to everything, like all I really wanted was Reebok, you know, cause it just, I, I really liked, you know, the vector logo right. and things like that. And I think everybody else really enjoyed it as well. Nobody really, I mean, once the basketball and all that other stuff came into play, you know, like it was just such a revolutionary, the sneakers that they would bring out, the colorways from the neon, you know, everybody was doing it, but it just, it was a wild time, man. Everybody was wearing Reebok. Early 90s. Yeah. We need to get back to that. We've got to get it back to that. There's no reason why. Yeah. <laughs> We've written a book. I've written a book. Shoemaker. Shoemaker just shows our history. We had a tremendous history. Way, 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 way back. We're 125 years of history now. And so, so I'm fascinated. So look at those retro shoes you're talking about now. Those, those retro shoes of the 90s, the late 80s and 90s. Brilliant. And, you know, I, I think we can do it. It's not been good under Adidas. Adidas bought the company mm-hmm. to improve Adidas. And why not? If you bought a company, you'd improve your, yourself. You wouldn't look after Reebok. And they've not done. But now Reebok is up for sale again. And uh, who knows? But, you know, the opportunity is there. Life can come around again. Are you ready to take another crack at it, Joe? <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. I'm willing to work with, with anybody who's uh, – yeah. it, it won't be me to be a lot of people there who know a lot more than I do these days. Uh, and we have so much difference. We have, like, we have now computers with uh, mobile telephones. Technology has moved on so much. Yeah, last time I visited Boston to the uh, to the Reebok uh, head office, uh, we're going around looking at the three D printing machines. You know, three D printing shoes. You know, okay, too expensive, too slow at this moment, but you know, who knows what time brings it? So there's a there's a lot of progress. Things go around. They don't just go around in circles. They go around. Yeah, and go up and it just goes up in a different circle. But no, there's there's a time. I think there's a time right now. Yes, why not? Let's get it back. When I left the company at the end of 1989, we'd got to a billion dollars. We had overtaken Adidas. We have overtaken Nike. And Reebok was the number one global brand. That was it. But, you know, for me, the challenge was over there. We had a bunch of accountants. We had a bunch of lawyers, you people just knowing how to package mm-hmm. uh, billions of, you know, so many shoes to make this. And I, I then developed the global market. That's right. And I'd put on about another 30, 30 different countries. So we had another 30 different countries. But I used to say to Paul, Paul, whatever you do, concentrate on America. You get America, keep America, keep it going. Because that, that, is, that is what makes the rest of the world tick. The rest of the world looks. What America does, because there's all that energy in America, and that energy just overflows. It overflows to Japan. It overflows to Germany. You know? But these, are, these markets, are, they're looking at what's going on. That's the center, of, the center of culture. In America. Yeah. The center of culture, and Joe, I know, I know, our time is limited, and, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time, and I want to be respectful of your time. So, okay. just to sort of wrap things up, and to ask, just to, like I guess the, the last question is, I know that you talked about kind of having like a obviously some, you have to be kind of a workaholic, right, to build a business from <laughs> from from zero to to that stage, and I know that you know you eventually pretty much left the business, and you, and you did focus on the international market for Reebok. 
but you kind of keep it more low key these days. Um, but I notice I notice you're doing quite a lot of podcasts, quite a lot of interviews. I mean, you've written a book. I mean, I think it seems like you're still working just as hard. I know podcasts aren't that easy. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the challenge of the, uh, the company. And now I enjoy the challenge of driving this book. Because a lot of people can read Wikipedia, can read things on Google, you know, where Reebok came from. And there's a lot of missed stories out there, a lot of stories that, no, it didn't happen that way. No. So, you know, the book is telling the story. It also uh, tells my story. Right. And, you know, for me, what's the point in writing a book unless you can get somebody to buy it? True. So, very true. We wanted to become a bestseller in America. If we can get it to be a bestseller, a lot of people like David, he remembers the brand. Let's get it back there. Yeah. Even if it's if we if we sell, I think if we sell enough books, I think it might have an influence. Definitely. Definitely. To get the brand back again. So you know, the opportunity is there. Come on, David. We need you. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll bring it back. You know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw on my rebounds right now, right after this interview. <laughs> We we buy trust me we we're very loyal. I mean we buy all shoe brands, but Reebok is one of our oh. favorites, all time favorites. It's one of the best. Brilliant, uh, love it. Thank you, thank you so much, Joe, for doing this. We really appreciate it, and it's it was really a pleasure. It's been an honor. Um, hope to keep in touch on social media. I appreciate you being so active on there. Well, Not a lot of uh, founders do that. Yeah, Jewel is active. Jewel is the one. She's my chief. Yes, you you obviously make arrangements with Jewel, and she's our technology. She's everything now. So. Fine, yeah, and I do the podcast, and I do the meetings, should I say. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Julie Foster. It's been a pleasure, show. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed the rest of your of your evening. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate you. We will. It was one of the best days of my life. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you. Bye, Joe. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Wasn't that such a treat? I mean, Joe's such a sweet guy, and he has such an incredible story and such a rich history and he's still you know sharp man even at 85 he's still firing on all cylinders so um we really enjoyed having him on i hope you guys enjoyed the podcast if you've been a weekly listener to the show i just want to take the time to say thank you so much it really means a lot to nacho and i and if you could please leave us a review on itunes if you have the time or wherever it is you get your podcast it would really really help us out and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that, and I hope it made your day better, whether it's a sunny day, a rainy day, a cloudy day, a dark night, wherever it is you are in the world. Thank you so much for tuning in, and with that being said, farewell for now, and we will see you next week. Peace. <laughs>